Praise God. To all of you who were here last night, you'll, you'll know that the presence of God was here in this place. And it's the same presence of God's here, but it's interesting because God can show up and do two completely different things. And I feel the presence of God here, but I feel something completely different. And we need to be okay with that. I think we, we err when we start expecting the same exact thing from God every single time. And it's, it's not like that in our human relationships. We know that sometimes we'll have a, a joking conversation. Sometimes we'll have a serious conversation. Sometimes we'll have a heart-to-heart. -heart, and it's just it's the ebbs and flows of relationship. And I feel like God wants to do something today, but it's going to be very different than last night. And so I don't want you to be looking for what happened last night. I want you to be looking for what God wants to do right now. Amen. I believe that God wants to take us somewhere this morning. I've uh, been feeling after the Holy Ghost, been feeling after what he wants me to do. And I just keep falling back right here on these uh, passages. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. I'm going to read verse 8, verse 9, and then I'm going to read chapter 8, verse 4, shortly thereafter. Thank you so much, um, Brother Williams. Thank you so much, Bishop, for allowing me to be here this weekend. I'm so appreciative of it. I'm thankful I got to spend time with them. I'm thankful for the relationship that I have with the pastoral team here at this church. I'm just thankful for every one of you. To those of you who have been here every single night in this revival, I honor you. I thank you for participating with what God was doing. If this is, if you haven't been able to make it for whatever reason, we ask that you, we've been doing a lot of plowing moving forward, and uh, there's been a lot of work in the spirit done. We ask that you just get right into the work of what God wants to do today and partner with the church. Amen. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. Now, the word perfect, before you get disheartened, that means complete. It doesn't mean the perfection that you think of. In the Bible, it just means he was complete. And here's why. Noah walked with God. We know the story of Noah, but I want to just pull something out really quickly in Genesis chapter 8, verse 4. Then the ark rested. Everyone say rested. In the seventh month. The 17th day of the month on the mountain of Ararat. I want to speak to us today. I just want to use this title, One Square Inch. That place where that ark rested, the words that are used in the Bible are very pointed. It, it could have used it settled or it sat or it just stopped, but it doesn't. It says the ark rested. And that's very important, and I hope to pull out why here in a moment. But I believe that God wants to do something in the people of God today. There's still a spirit that I've been wrestling with since I've been here. And I believe you got victory over it last night. But here's what I know about spiritual things. When we're around people who have authority, we're around ministers who have authority in certain areas. Now, let me explain to you what authority is. We get authority through the blood of the Lamb, and we go through seasons of things where we're tempted or tested, and when we overcome it by the blood of the Lamb, God's grace gives us authority in that area where we overcame. Now you have a word of testimony. And what happens is when we're in church and we get victory over something, we think, okay, well, that's it. I'm never going to have to deal with that ever again, and we're, we're good. Well, when you go home, you're going to have to go get your own authority. You're going to have to learn how to overcome that spirit when you're away from church now. 
when you're away from people of like precious faith, when you're at work. And I want to give you the tools now to stay in the vein you got into last night. When you're not around your brothers and sisters, when you're not in a church service, when not everyone's cheering you on to worship, when it's just you all by yourself or around coworkers, God wants to impart to you. And it's for everyone. It's for, everyone. It's for all of you. And what I want to do is I want to help you today to live in a place above the floodwaters. Would you just lift up your hands right now? I want you to begin to pray. I'm not going to push you. In fact, I'm going to put this microphone down, and I believe the Lord wants to hear the prayers of his children today without being pressed, without being prompted, without being coached. Just would you begin to pray to him? Open up your mouth. Make supplication. Make prayers. But seek the face of God right now. Father. Praise God. Praise God. You can be seated. In 1984, there was a man named Gordon Hempton who was a he was an acoustic ecologist, and he set out into, he went and traveled out through all the United States, and he was trying to find the quietest place in America. At the end of his travels, he would collect all of his sound recording equipment, and he discovered, much to his dismay, that there was only 21 places left in America that were truly silent. This was in 1984. As he continued to travel, as of 2005, much to his dismay, he had discovered that there were now only 12 truly quiet places in America. He will not disclose the location of the 11. He would only disclose the location of one. He determines that a true quiet place is an area where there is no intrusion of man-made noise for at least one hour. And there are only 12 places left, he said, in America. This is as of 2005. So the location that he let everyone know about was in the Ho National Forest. This was a park in Washington State where he said, I will disclose this one location where it's one of the 12 that is the quietest place in America. And he said, because I'm wanting to begin a project. He called it the One Square Inch Project. He walked out into the middle of the forest, and he found the quietest place there in that national forest. And he takes a stone that was in, it was one square inch in total space. He takes it, and he sets it upon a log. And he had this theory. He said that if sound can obliterate silence, if sound with an echo can just reverberate throughout the land, and it obliterate pristine, perfect silence, then maybe also the opposite is true. Maybe silence has an echo if someone advocates for it. So he set that one square inch stone on top of that log and he began this project. He then let everyone know, he said, we are losing the beauty and sanctity of silence. 
It's getting lost amongst our generation. And he would test people. He said, sit wherever you are and tell me what you hear. And people will hear refrigerators. People will hear microwaves. They will hear phones, even on silence, still vibrate. He said, there's still the intrusion of sound. And so when he set this stone, he said, I want to declare that this stone of silence will echo out across the land. And he said, I want to make the airspace above this national forest off limits to where an airplane won't even fly over it and mess up silence. I wanted if anyone travels into this forest to go hiking that they have to leave their cell phones and all of their man-made equipment at the beginning of the trail so as to not obliterate silence. And sure enough, the state of Washington declared the airspace over the National Forest as off-limits. And what he had a theory of was true. If someone will advocate for silence, then silence can be preserved. And I have been listening in to the Spirit, and I have been agitated in my soul as I listen across our movement, and I am hearing a lot of noise. I'm hearing a lot of what would we would think is truth, it is actually a falsehood. I've, I, I even listen to some music and I hear the lyrics and I say, that's not even biblical. I listen to some speak and I say, that, you, that sounds like a good sermon, but it's not fully based on the word. And I've been just listening to a lot of things. I hear a lot of chatter. I hear a lot of worry. I hear a lot of frustration. And I have asked the Lord, I said, God, I said, I want you to tune me into a place where my soul is truly silent. And God has been dis disconnecting me from everything. I've disconnected from social media, not because I'm some spiritual guru or I'm some spiritual giant, but simply because I hear the voice of one calling me closer to him, and I want to advocate for silence, and so I've been shutting everything that I can possibly shut down so that I can tune in to the Spirit. I don't just listen to anything. I just don't tune in to any old thing. I want to listen into the voice of God, and I have found that it is easiest to hear him when I silence everything around me. The noise that I'm hearing the loudest is culture. And I'm not just talking about world culture. There is a church culture as well. There is a a pressing that we have to do X, Y, Z when we get to church. We have scripted this thing so much that when God wants to come in and do something fresh and new, we we don't even feel it or see it because we hear the noise of tradition or a culture telling us, well, no, you've got to do this first. We have to sit and wait upon the Lord. We need to worship him. Our only objective when we come in here from the ministry to the back pew is to lift up our hands and worship him and whatever he tells us in that moment, we are to follow. And this is what we mean when we say being spirit-led. We want to hear the spirit. But to do that, we have to get a one square inch. And I want to reveal to you what that one square inch is. It is nothing more than biblical rest. Biblical rest. I'll take it from the zero amens that you have no idea what I'm talking about. Rest. Psalm 23 says, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He does not put me in chaos and leads me beside chaotic waters. If he's going to lead me, it's going to be in a restful place. Isaiah 32, 17 says, The work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. 
you want to know what the will of God is, you need to find it in rest. If you want to know what God is asking of you, go rest and he'll tell you because it's hard to hear him unless you're in a peaceful habitation. God knew there would be a culture that was obsessed with the noise of busy, the noise of anxiety, the noise of fear. And if I were an adversary, I would work you to death. We're supposed to strive. But according to Hebrews, it says strive to enter the rest. The work that we put forth is to enter a resting place. And the reason why I read from Genesis 6 is because it says that Noah found grace with God. Noah is not just a a name. It's not just some person that pops up on the pages of Holy Writ. It's not just some average man that just was walking with God and God said, okay, he's the only one walking for me. Let's use him. His name was divine and his name in Hebrew means rest. The name Noah is rest. And when you read it in the original language, it says, and rest found grace with God. A man walking about in here to to really push it further home. Noah's father was 777 years old when he prophesied, the Lord is going to send the land rest. 777. Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath is what prophesied the coming of rest. And there's Noah walking, a man named rest. And God comes to him and he says, Noah, rest, rest, come here. I I have something I need from you. And he says, "What what do you want from me, God? He says, I have found, you have found favor. I I have looked upon you, rest, and I want to do something. I need you to work. Oh, but God, that goes against my very nature and name and calling. I don't identify with that. You will. I just need you to do the right kind of work. You see, I'm not, I'm not advocating laziness, far from it. Laziness in the Holloway home is a curse word. We do not even say the word lazy. We can't stand lazy. I don't believe there's going to be lazy people in heaven. But I work a different job now. I strive for rest because finding rest is a lot of work. And it's getting more strenuous, I feel, as we get closer and closer to the day of the Lord. Because people are advocating that we do things that take us from rest. And so to to resist what the culture tells us to do and to work for rest, people don't want us doing that. We're obsessed with more, better, bigger. And God is saying, I'm looking for weak I'm looking for small. I'm looking for humble. It is totally opposite of what the culture is telling us. And so rest sets out, and he goes, and he says, okay, I've got to go, and I've got to fail these trees. And he begins to chop down these trees, and they fall to the ground, and he begins to take them, and he has to get help from his sons, no doubt, to drag these trees to a place. Then they've got to start clearing out all of the branches and take off the bark, and they've got to start removing and stripping and, and tearing down and then chopping up, and then they've got to fabricate and figure out ways to manufacture and to follow the blueprints that have been given in order to make this 
ark. And then after five, six years, they would think, we're still not even close. We've only got the frame for this thing. And then they would work even more. And they said, okay, the blueprint said to put pitch on the outside. I don't even know what that's for. I'm just going to follow the blueprints. And okay, it seems a bit obsessive, God. This is a lot of extra work, and I'm not doing what you called me to do. This is My name is rest, and you've got me working myself to the bone. But I'm going to put pitch on the outside. I'm going to put tar on the outside of the boat. And then he looks at the blueprints that God gave him, and he says, you want tar on the inside as well? It seems excessive. Okay, but I'll do it. And he puts the tar on the inside. He says, well, thank God there's only one door. That's one less thing to build and worry about. There's only one door i got to worry about, so let's not strive and work at things we don't have to. Let's put one door on the side. And so they put a door on the side. And about the year 50, he's thinking, oh, my God, I am weary. I am wore out. Is there? Is it ever going to be accomplished? You see, there's striving involved in this whole thing. Little did he know that he was building salvation. I'm going to build this salvation. Okay, we got the tar on the outside. We got the tar on the inside. It's got one door. And we've been working at this thing for so long. Then year 100 rolls around. And he's wore out. He's tired. He's waking up early in the morning. He says, oh, this is so much work to go into the, the work of salvation today. And he probably has to drag himself. But he says, if I don't build it according to the blueprints, then I won't ever have rest. So let me, if I can build this thing, then I can rest in it. So he finishes the boat, year 120. You can imagine he is now wore out after collecting all the animals. And he says, oh, this calling has wore me out. I am weary. But now I think we're finally done. And then raindrops start coming down. And he starts feeling the waters. And the Bible said that the waters prevailed greatly. It says it multiple times in Genesis that the water kept prevailing, kept prevailing. But in that moment, we see that salvation is rising above the water that was coming. And after the third declaration of the waters prevailing, the Bible says that all all flesh was removed. The work is beginning to see the fruit of it. We're starting to see the fruit of what rest was accomplishing. Rest works at salvation. This boat's going to save your life, Noah. And now you're getting a revelation of why I told you to put tar on the outside and on the inside. You have to have faith that what's on outside is working, and you can feel what's on the inside because you're in there with it. It matters that there's tar outside and inside so that nothing can from the outside can get into. It is sealed. You did it according to the blueprints. Well done, rest. Now, rest, I want you to enter into that salvation. And not only that, but here's what I'm going to do. The ark that you made, the salvation that was created is going to park on a little parcel of land. There's going to be a little one square inch of stone that you're going to land on. And the Bible says that he, the ark, the salvation, I'll use the word salvation, that salvation rested on Mount Ararat. The interesting thing about that is also that that mountain is not just given some random name. It's not just some Middle Eastern name that means nothing to us. That name, Ararat, is cursed. It's the word cursed. And right there, that salvation lands on top of a cursed hill. One square inch, and there it sits. And so Noah looks out and he says, oh, I want to go out into this great world. I want to rest, not just here, but I want to come out. I want this salvation to bring me to a place of rest. This salvation, I'm feeling, I'm starting to feel the benefits of all this work that God has called me to do. I'm starting to feel it, but it's, I still feel like I'm longing for some more rest. I want to fully identify with the name he's given me. So I'm, I want to step out of this into a promised place. And so he sits 
up there and he looks out and he goes, but it's all water out there. But he sends out a dove. The dove goes out and it's hovering over water and it comes back and he says, okay, that's a sign to me that I can't leave the boat yet. We need to stay in the salvation because the promise isn't here. So he rests seven days, sends the dove back out. The dove comes back. It's got a twig in its hand. And he says, oh, a promised land is emerging out of the waters. There's another Eden coming back. There's another garden out there. And so he says, okay, but it's not enough to step out of the salvation yet. We're not in the promise. So he rests another seven days because what did we expect a man named rest to do? But then the third time he sends out the dove, the dove doesn't return. And he says, that's my sign. The salvation did its job. All of that hard work, that striving is leading us to a promised land. And he comes out of that boat and he steps on top of that one square inch of rock that he was parked on. And he comes out and he looks at the salvation. He says, salvation rested right here on a cursed heel. And now because of salvation resting on a cursed heel and the calling of a man named rest, I can finally enter my rest. And he goes down and he plants a garden. It's Eden all over again. The reason why all of that is beautiful and the reason why we must see all of that is because that one small square inch shows up again. The chief cornerstone shows up in our midst. Jesus comes amongst us, and he walks out into our midst. In him is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Just like in that ark, if you read about it, there was an upper deck, a middle deck, and a lower deck. One boat, one door. There was no rudder. There was no steering wheels. There was nothing in the ark. It was just at the mercy of wherever God wanted it to land. Because if Noah would have been driving the boat, he would have been looking all over the place striving. But God said, if I drive the boat, I'll park it where it's supposed to go and it'll rest. When we're in salvation and salvation is in us, he's the captain. He drives this thing. There's no rudder. There's not three boats. There's one boat. It has three inside of it. It is the upper deck, middle deck, and lower deck, but it is one boat. There is the beauty of the oneness of the Godhead right there in the salvific vehicle called the ark. And Jesus shows up, and in him dwelled the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the Father, the Son, the Spirit. It's all inside of me. I am the salvation. I am also the door, he said. One door. There's not a bunch of doors that lead to him. He said, I am the door. No man comes unto the Father but by me. I am salvation, but I was not built with human hands. I am here as salvation. And he stands up one day and he says these words, Come unto me, all that are weary and heavy laden, There is a godly work that the people of God must participate with. It is for those that are willing to work. It is for those that are willing to strive. But if you're going to be a hard worker, and if you're going to be one of those people that strives, and you can't stand laziness as much as I can't stand laziness, then please sign up and get into the right occupation. Your job is salvation. Your job is to build salvation according to the blueprints. Your job is to preach salvation. Your job is not just 
to preach it, but to also to enter into it. And when you learn how to rest in him and he resting in you, then you will find favor with God. But here's what will happen. Here's what will be on the epitaph of your life is that we will say of you, this person walked with God. You did the work. You rose up early to pray. You began to worship. And you didn't strive just after meaningless things. You were striving after the things of God. And God will look at you and say, I have found favor with those that knew how to rest in me. Come unto me, all that weary and are heavy laden. But Jesus' work wasn't done. Jesus would come to us and he says, you remember that dove that you saw about that rest, my servant rest sent out? Here, watch this. Jesus steps into watery baptism. And as he's standing there, John the Baptist baptizes him. And when he comes out of that water, a dove descends on top of him. That wasn't the third in the Trinity. That was the dove of Noah from the Old Testament that found the root and stem of Jesse, the tender plant according to Isaiah that was prophesied and said, here he is. Here's Eden. This is the new covenant. This is the salvation that has come. Rest is coming. He's getting ready to give us a new covenant. But before he does, he's going to have to go rest on a cursed hill. And Jesus gets ready and he walks and he says, there, I have healed some things. I'm healing the land and salvation has come. Your rest is here. I want you to strive to live in me as I'm striving and doing the work of the cross and death to enter into you. And Jesus goes to a cursed hill and they raise him up on that cross. And there he stands sitting on that cross. He's at rest and he says, ah, I endure this pain for the joy that is set before me. The chastisement of their peace is now on me. I'm going to give them peace. I'm going to give them rest. I am going to be their assurance. This is the only way that I can lead you besides steel waters. This is the only way that I can put you into green pastures. And there is a rest for the people of God, the Bible says in Hebrews. It has been made available to all of us. And there is a place where we can enter into where there's no anxiety. There's a place where we can enter into where there's true rest, where we lay our head down at night and we say, okay, God, I feel good. I don't feel any anxiousness. I don't feel any fear. I'm not worried about what Fox and CNN says. I'm not worried about what's going to happen because I know that you've got this whole thing figured out. I have entered into him and he has entered into me. We have built a salvation. I have began to cleave to that one rock. God wants to give you a stone. He wants to give you that one square inch. But today you're going to have to do the work of silencing everything else around you. You're going to have to come out from behind the veil that you hide behind. And you're going to have to say, God, today I'm not just going to sit here and just go through a little motions because it's a Sunday and this is what we do. But God, I'm going to strive. There's always going to be a striving. But here's what we err in doing. This, this has been something that I can't get away from, Brother Dustin. In Exodus 19, go and look at it. Exodus 19 is 50 days after Passover, which anybody who, who knows their Bible knows 50 days after Passover is what? It's Pentecost. Exodus 19, it's Pentecost before Pentecost was ever a thing. Before God told Moses what Pentecost even was, he was standing there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And the Bible says, Moses, gather all the people and consecrate them for three days. Then bring them to the foot of the mountain, for I want to make them, plural, a nation of priests, plural. All of them. Every one of them. 
And so sure enough, he does that. The people are all gathered around. And then the beautiful thing happens. The Bible says that fire fell on that mountain. And here's the little pretty thing in the, in the Hebrew text that we don't see in English. In English where it says they heard thunders and lightnings, the word thunders, if you were here the other night and I was talking about the lips, the language that, I, that Isaiah they touched his unclean lips. That's the word language. It's kolot. That word that was used for thunders is the same word. It's language. They saw a language coming down in the fire. But it, it's hard to translate from Hebrew to English, and so you can imagine being a translator. How do I translate seeing languages? <laughs> well, you have to read it in light of Acts 2 in order to get that revelation. And so in the fire was coming down language on the day of Pentecost. And the Bible says that Moses went on up. And he's at rest up there. He's in the Eden place. But the Bible says that the people feared the voice. And so you know what happens right there. Here's the big story that frustrates us. They said, Moses, you go talk to God for us. Remember, the call was to be a nation of priests. So rather than do that, they became a nation with a priest. You do it for us. You build the ark. You do the work. You hear from God. It's just, this is something that I've just gotten aggressive about because I've had people call me and they say, man of God, you got a word for me? And I look at them and say, I'm your brother, not your daddy. Go ask the father. You go get in a prayer room. You go ask him. And maybe if we're both in tune, I'll confirm it. Or you'll confirm what God's saying to me. But ultimately, I'm going to go to the Word, and I'm going to put forth my own work, and I'm going to study what his Word says because I want the Word to confirm what God said because God is the Word. But here's the thing. We want people, we want ministers, we want musicians to get us to a place of the deep that we should know how to get to without even a tune being played. We want preachers to press us and push us. And we're thinking that our tradition, the fact that we're here, I should just, I should just be in the presence of God. I showed up at 10, didn't I? I'm here. Here, God. I'll go 90. You come the other 10. And God is sitting there and he says, I went to the cross. I did the full 100. I said, come unto me, all that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I never said I was running after you. I know that your songs say that I'm never going to stop running after you. I know that Caleb says that I'm never going to stop chasing you. But my word doesn't say that. So I want you to come unto me, and I will give you rest. I gave you that will because it gives me pleasure when you use it to worship me. You use it to strive to enter this rest. Just like Noah had to work for 120 years, wore out, but he saw the value of that salvation. Why do you think we baptize in water? Because that's the tar on the outside of the vessel. And why do you think we preach the Holy Ghost? Because that's the tar on the inside of the vessel. Just like that ark needed on the outside and the inside. That's why we believe in outward baptism that everybody sees and inward infilling of the Holy Ghost. That's why we believe that because now you are full of salvation. Nothing's getting in and hopefully by your, by your work nothing's going to get out. By you beginning to participate with God, you begin to see that there's value in partnering in building a salvation. 
But let's look at what he did. He parked, he rested on a cursed hill on our behalf. There remains a rest for the people of God. And you know when we're starting to trickle into that secret place where there's rest. Because there's, there's been this thing that, that I was raised on. And I know many of you, there's elders in this room, even young people that know what I'm talking about. Have you been in a service where just something came into the room and everybody was arrested and we just sat there and we knew something's coming. I can feel it. I remember being a little boy sitting in a church service and I could, I can remember I'd be playing with Legos and when I was six years old under the pew and then I could feel it when it hit the room and something came over me as a six-year-old. Okay, it's not, it's not time to play with Legos anymore. And I'd push them under the pew and I'd stand up and I'd look over the top of that pew and I would see that every Everybody was sitting there completely quiet, arrested by the presence of God. And then there would be what I would be told was called a holy hush. That hush would hit the room. And then somebody would stand up possessed by God and begin to speak in tongues. And then somebody possessed by God over here would stand up and give the interpretation of that. That's what happens when we step into that secret place where we're in a resting abode in that resting place. But what happened prior to that moment was not anybody just. They were striving to enter that rest. They had their hands raised. They were worshiping God. There was no reason. I asked God, I said, God, why do we even have preachers when we have a cross? It's truly foolishness when you consider that what I'm doing is to tell you about the greatest message ever preached, which was preached on Mount Curse in the ark in that moment on Jesus standing on top of Golgotha. When he's up there, that should be enough for all of us. I don't even know why I'm here right now, to be honest honest with you. I don't even know why I'm having to tell you this. I shouldn't even have to tell you any of this stuff. You reading your Bible and walking into this room should provoke all of us to lift up our hands the moment we walk through the door. And I'm not saying this to be harsh. I'm trying to provoke something in you that you don't need me to come up here and tell you about the greatest message ever preached. Yes, we need teaching. Yes, we need preaching for the edification. But we don't need anybody else to tell us about how great his salvation is. If you're a guest here, I believe you need it. But those of you who have been raised in this your whole life, you should be the first ones walking through those back doors with hands raised, waving those wave offerings unto the Lord, working and striving and saying, God, here I am. Thank you for dying on that cross for me. Thank you for the blood. Thank you, Jesus, for covering the outside of the vessel. Thank you for the Holy Ghost that covers the inside of the vessel. God, I don't even need that preacher to tell me what to do. I don't need anybody to call a prayer meeting or a 40-day fast or a five-day fast. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. God, I know by your word alone to come into this place and to lift you up. Why do you think Peter, who was building salvation in Acts 2, he stood up and he said, hey guys, we've done this before. Salvation fell in Exodus 19 when that spirit fell on that mountain and those people ignored it. We ignored it once before and I implore you today, Acts would stand up and he'd say, hey guys, on this Pentecost fire fell again and language fell in the fire once again and today we're all the little mountains he didn't fall on Mount Sinai. He felt on 120 mountains. And I am up here telling you, don't miss the mountain today. Don't miss the opportunity to be a priest because this promise is unto you, unto your children, and to as many as the Lord our God shall call. It's for everybody, those that are far off. He said, don't miss the Pentecost. Strive. And those people who are willing to work, they stood up and they said, what do we need to do, preacher? And there's always supposed to be spirit-led speaking and 
spirit-led responding. Spirit-led responding was, what do we need to do? We're willing. And here's the thing. The preacher can get discouraged by the, the multitudes that say, well, are these people drunk? If you get obsessed with the naysayers, you miss the 3,000s. Peter said, these people are not drunken. This is not what you think it is, but this is that which was prophesied by the prophet Joel. He said that in the last days he would pour out his spirit. I'm not listening to the scoffers and those that are not willing to strive to enter his rest. These people are getting their rest. And just like that dove on that final leaving, he did not come back. Jesus ascended up the one whom the dove was descending on and he said I am the root and stem of Jesse but I was buried as this promised seed in the ground and in that ground where I was buried the seed died but what resurrected was the tree of life on the third day the tree of life is here on your earth right now all that wants rest come unto me I have if I be lifted up I will draw all men unto me but here's the thing I have to be lifted up on that cursed hill and Jesus being lifted up on that cross he was able to draw all of us to him but when they buried him he resurrected as the tree of life they even came out Mary looked at him and said that can't be Jesus that's a gardener that's exactly what Jesus was he was planting the tree of life for you and me we no longer are withheld from the tree of life because God healed the curse that you and I had on our life and when he healed the curse he gave us the tree of life and he said now you can have eternal life because I've removed the curse because I didn't want you to have it because you'd be cursed forever but now now that I've removed the curse by partnering with it, now I can give you eternal life. And it's here. He said, but what I'm getting ready to do next, you've seen the root and stem of Jesse. You've seen the tender plant that grew. The dove showed it to you in the waters. But here's what I'm going to do next. When you see me leave, that means I'm going to prepare a new resting place. And Jesus ascends and he tells him, he says, where I'm going. I will come back, I promise you that. In my Father's house are many rooms. In this salvation down here that you've built, it's going to be parked on the holy mountain someday. And when this salvation helps you rise above the chaos waters that are coming with the end times, it's going to rest in a heavenly place. And this salvation will have done its job. You can come out of the ark at that point because salvation would have brought you to your eternal rest. I don't hear enough preaching about heaven anymore. Where is the revelation of the people of God where we tell people about heaven? When was the last time you went out into the streets and you said, hey, has anybody told you about heaven lately? Has anyone told you that it's better than anything on this earth to come we have a little taste of it in our church won't you come and visit our church in fact if you don't feel comfortable coming to church yet why don't you come into the prayer room with me because i have a little taste of heaven there as well in fact you don't know it but you're feeling a little bit of heaven around you right now because i'm not an earthling i'm a heavenling and i'm bringing it around you and i want you to get a taste of the peace that i have that's why i'm not going to talk to you about all the junk that's going on in our world because i've tuned all that out because i found my little square inch it's the square inch of heaven, which was given to me by salvation. This is what we need. We need to have a revival of people that are preaching heaven again, because Jesus was that dove that went up, and he said, I'm going. I'm going away to work. I'm going away to strive. I'm going away to build. And if God did all of this on earth, and he did it in six days, and it's so beautiful that we travel on vacation every year to see its wonder and beauty. And we're so in love with this world that we don't even want to leave it. 
That tells me that we have a revelation and wonder of what he did in six days. We haven't got a revelation and wonder yet of what he's been doing for 2,000 years. If this earth is so great, then what on earth has he been doing? He has been working at something far greater than all of this. And what I want you to do is I want you to get a revelation of heaven right now. I want you to stand with your hands raised. And I want you to get this revelation. I want everybody to close your eyes. Let me just tell you. Let me just bring you into the prayer room of the Holloways. And let me tell you about our heaven. Because my wife and I, we've painted the picture very vivid. We talk about it all the time. In fact, if you want to hear a Bible study on heaven, ask my six-year-old daughter. She, said, she tells the best Bible stories. Bible studies on heaven. She can tell anybody a Bible study on heaven. She talks about it 24-7. She says, I'm getting ready to see my brother one day. I'm going to heaven. When she comes out of a good church service, she'll ask me. she said, Daddy, was that heaven? And I said, yeah, that's what it's going to be like, but it's going to be even better than that. I want you to get what my daughter has. If my six-year-old can leave a church service talking about heaven, then what's wrong with me and you? We have to get that revelation so deep in our spirits that it's all that we work for. All of this work down here is going to lead us to that place. All of this striving down here is going to be worth it someday. But let me give you a glimpse of our heaven. My wife and I, when we get called up yonder and when we walk through those pearly gates because of the salvation and the salvation rests on that holy mountain. It won't be a cursed mountain anymore. It's going to be a holy mountain, the Bible says. And when we come out of that salvation and we walk on those streets of gold, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk past the gates of pearl and I'm going to look at them and I'm going to say, those are nice but that's not what I'm here for. I'm going to look at the gates of, at the streets of gold and I'll say, oh, this is really cool, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm not even impressed by this because God asked me to give all of this money. Why would I be impressed by it? I can't buy anything. And I'm going to walk past, the Bible says that there's going to be a, a prison cell and our adversary is going to be locked away. And I'm going to walk past that prison cell and I'm going to look at him and I say, why on earth would I sit here and look at you? I've been dealing with you the whole time I was on earth. But I'm going to look at him and I'm going to say, you call caused me and my family a lot of trouble. You put thoughts into my mind, and you warred against the church. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to testify to you one last time while I'm up here, and I'm going to look the adversary in the face, and I'm going to say, what made you think you could destroy the church when that man right there, the one holy one perched upon Zion, was dwelling within the church? And I'm going to walk up to the Lord, and I'm going to look at him face to face finally, and I'm going to say, God, this is what I've been working for. This is what I've been striving after and I'm going to take my family and I'm going to bow down and the Bible said he's going to place a crown of suffering on our heads and I'm going to hit my knees and he's going to put the crown of suffering on my head and I already have told God I said God I refuse to wear a crown of suffering in your presence I'm going to take that crown off my head and I'm going to say God I cannot wear this in front of you because you suffered more than any of us and I'm going to take that crown and I'm going to throw it at the feet of Jesus and my family and I are going to worship God for eternity. And we're going to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. For to him who is worthy to receive glory and riches and honor and blessing. That's my heaven. That's what I've been working for. That's why I travel. That's why we do this work. This is why we raise up early in the morning and we pray. This is why we go from place to place. And even though we're weary, we always confirm with one another. We're going to enter rest. 
Would somebody right now begin to strive? Would somebody right now begin to pray? Would somebody begin to press? Would you come out from behind that veil of hiding and just lift up holy hands and say, God, I am pressing right now. In fact, would somebody in this room run to these altars? Would you just come up here? Would you thrust those hands into the air and say, God, if I'm going to do work, if I'm going to do striving, if I'm going to do anything, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to strive to enter that rest according to Hebrews. It says strive to enter the rest. There is a wide open door, but God's not going to begin to pull you into it. The Bible says, lo, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody will enter in, that's your job. You're supposed to come up to him and confess. You're supposed to run to him and repent. It's our job to do those things. God partners. That's why he placed Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and keep it. That's why the Bible said he placed the priests in the tabernacle to work and keep it. We are supposed to do the godly work. I know that you've been in revival. I know that you've been here since Thursday, but we're going to keep on pressing. We're going to keep on working because there is a rest that is promised to the people of God. That's why the author of Hebrews says there's still remaineth a rest. There's still one more rest. It wasn't in the promised land. It wasn't in that moment when Jesus just showed up. It is beyond all of that that Jesus is giving the ultimate rest. But right here, nestled in this church service, is a rest for the people of God. God wants to come and he wants to destroy the curse that's on your life. He did that when he was partnering with the thorns. That's when he worked by the sweat of his brow in the garden by bleeding great drops of blood onto the ground. He's already taking care of the curse. So whatever you came in here bound with, whether addiction or problems or issues or anxieties, emotions, whatever it may be, God can heal that curse right now. He's already done it. You just have to let go of it. It's not a matter of can he. It's a matter of he already did. You just got to let go of the curse and say, God, you've already destroyed this yoke. You've already destroyed this curse. You did it on the cross. Now, God, I want to enter into that rest.